0: Welcome. My name is Dr. Avril Alba, and I'm from the Department of Hebrew, Biblical, and Jewish Studies in the School of Languages and Cultures here at this very fine university. Um, And it is our department's great pleasure to have hosted Professor Michael Berenbaum this past week. I want to first of all thank a few people that have enabled this event to take place. And the first is Meredith Hall and Sydney Ideas, uh, the wonderful flagship public program of Sydney University. And um, Meredith's program is is extraordinary. So I encourage you to take some of the flyers as you leave and to visit the website and you will see some of the finest visitors uh, to Sydney each year by coming to Meredith's programs. So we want to thank Meredith for working with us. I also want to thank Mandelbaum House, the, the Jewish house on campus, who are our partner in so many academic endeavours and are and so tonight. And they really support us hugely over at the department and we're very grateful to them for their support of this evening's um, talk. And finally, I want to say a personal note of thanks to Mr. David Simons, who um, was who our sponsor to bring Professor Berenbaum to Sydney to give a memorial lecture at the museum and to give this public lecture tonight at the university. So now, it is my pleasure to introduce Professor Michael Berenbaum. Michael Berenbaum is director of the Siggy Ziering Institute, exploring the ethical and religious implications of the Holocaust and professor of Jewish studies at the American Joint University in Los Angeles. He was formerly the project director overseeing the creation of the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington and the president and CEO of the survivors of the Shoah Visual History Foundation, which took the testimony of 52,000 survivors in 32 languages and 57 countries. He's the author and editor of 22 books. He was the executive editor of the 22-volume 16 million-word second edition of the Encyclopaedia Judaica, which was named Outstanding Research Work of 2006. And his work in film has earned him an Emmy Award and he's been the executive producer, producer, interviewee and historical consultant to scores of films, three of which have earned Academy Awards. He will address you tonight um, on on the topic... That, that has been announced. Um, but there will also be an opportunity for a QA that will take place at, at the end of the at the end of the lecture. So please prepare your questions for then. So please welcome and thank Professor Michael Barrma.
1: Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, This reminds me of a very basic thing, which is no good deed goes unpunished, which is many years ago we wanted to invite to the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, a very distinguished scholar. So we invited Conrad Cuit, who spent about 18 months with us, and uh, he decided not to get mad, but to get even. And the second is that uh, I was approached uh, by a young scholar, if I could give her some assistance as she was working on her dissertation, and she also did not get mad, but got even. I'm also very pleased that uh, she announced the Chinese lectureship, because uh, let me, since most of what we're going to deal with is not humorous, I always like to begin with something a, a little bit humorous, which is uh, some of you who watch American television may have known that my namesake, but not me. Is the editor of a uh, of the Sex in the City series, and I got a call about seven. I got a call about seven years ago from Michael Birnbaum saying, "You'll never know what happened to me," which is, uh, I was invited to speak at a synagogue, <laughs> and all of a sudden, I discovered they introduced you, not me. And I had bragged to my mother, look how liberal the Jews are becoming, they invite me to a synagogue. um, 22 years ago, 23 years ago now, we were opening the opening conference of the United States Holocaust Memorial Museums Research Institute. And we asked to face a question, what do we know? What do we still not know? What is still disputed and one has to be re examined? And one of the things when they suggested I come here and they were looking for a title, this is what we call in my field an evergreen title, because the more you know, the more you realize what you do not know, and the more you realize what you need to know. So what I'm going to do this evening with you is to touch on five areas of um, where research is is changing and also where the questions are different than the questions we used to ask. And what we thought was at least disputed or settled now has to be re-examined. Uh, we'll do four of them on a um, on very serious topic, and one of them will be an oddball, but you'll trust me by the time we get there to allow it to be an oddball. Let me begin with a film clip that we're going to show. And this film clip, uh, despite the fact that we did the film, it actually is one of the most instructive things in how to read a visual document. And if you research the Holocaust, some of your documents are written. Many now are oral because we've worked deeply in survivor testimony. And even some of the great documents, man, I know that my friend Christopher Browning has been here who is a great documents man, he also has been working in oral history and what we learn. This is gonna be a little bit, and today just at the museum, I worked with the staff on one visual document, which is a photograph of Hadamar, which was one of the T4 killing centers And in order to really understand the document, you have to see the difference between the trees that have leaves on them and are full in a German summer and the dark smoke coming out of the chimney, which indicates what is being burned or who is being burned. We're going to look at this document and then I'm gonna talk about the type of research that has now changed what used to be called the ordinary men, ordinary German debate. But let's look at this visual document, be a couple of seconds.
2: pulled them all into the town center. And again, they were careful not to let anyone really know what the end result was going to be, as much as they
3: could, until it was too late. This film, which lasts less than two minutes, I think, was taken by an off-duty German military officer who attended this mass shooting uh, on the coast the latter part of June, in 1941, or the very early part of July. The film is a remarkable document, if you will. Within its very brief time period, um, gives us access to all of the actors in this horrific trauma. You have the victims, and you see, that in this case, these are all men, some of whom have been beaten, Shooters. These are uniformed SS and police personnel who are actually carrying the shooting. Then you have another important actor in the drama, and that is the local auxiliaries who assisted the German SS and police in the shooting. These are the men with white armbands. this really grotesque spectacle, and they're not witnessing anonymous people being shot, uh, they're witnessing their neighbors, their teachers, their pharmacists, their physicians, uh, people with whom they brought up, whom they looked up to perhaps. Uh, there's a kind of intimacy to the murders that is both incredibly unsettling, but also The most chilling set of frames in that for me is this pet dog that someone brings with them. How the dog is startled by the the rifle shots and darts across the frame, a kind of reflexive reaction on the part of the animal to the shots. Who brought the dog there? Uh, Did the dog go back home with them? Is the dog moving on on the scene when people were being being murdered. There's another scene that one of the SS down on the hillside and he kind of jumps and skittles down.
1: Just one comment on the video, which is that you have to have enormous respect for David Marwell. He did not see the movie as he was commenting on it, which is all of that was the way in which he recalled the movie, and his commentary makes it absolutely, you're seeing things in the movie that you might not have seen. How was this taken? This was taken in an interesting thing in 1941, which is that a German uh, soldier was on leave. He was an amateur photographer. He did what a soldier does on leave. He was looking for something to do in the afternoon. He was told, you can't go there. You're not allowed to see what's there. If you tell a 19-year-old boy, you're not allowed to see something, what is the first thing a 19-year-old boy does? He goes to see it. Remarkably, he had a camera in his hand. He was an amateur photographer. 25 years go by, he drops this film off at Yad Vashem, and he drops this film off essentially fearful that they're going to presume that he did the shooting, which he did not. The reason I bring this film to you is I want to go back to the debate and see how the debate, uh, number one, because it's the clearest way we understand the work of the mobile killing units, um, at least to understand the components of it. Number two, it is part of what we would have to talk about the re-examination of what we know. Several, <coughs> Two decades ago, or a little bit more, Christopher Browning wrote a very important book called Ordinary Men, Police Battalion 101, and their killing in um, occupied Poland. Let's make sure to say occupied Poland, even though it's not a crime in Australia. It might be a crime in Poland, uh, in occupied Poland. And his thesis essentially was, how do ordinary men become systematic killers? And what was remarkable, again, in Browning's work is that he did not give the standard explanation of obedience, rather he demonstrated, A, that no one was compelled to participate. In fact, in police battalion 101, they were given the opportunity to opt out. Several people opted out, but then (laughs) a sense of comradeship, a sense of being feared as being labeled uh, a coward, a sense of letting your guys down and not being tough enough and strong enough to uh, participate was precisely one of the reasons that these people went along, and gradually it became easier and easier, but also he noticed something else that originally alcohol was given afterwards. Sometimes it then had to be given before. And also during, and he wrote a quite remarkable book that is now standard fare in the field. Ordinary men. Along comes a young scholar who had the unfortunate situation of working through exactly the same material that um, that um, Chris Browning was working for. Working through. And if you want to make an original contribution to scholarship and get your PhD, you have to offer a radically different interpretation of precisely the same documentary material. And Daniel Jonah Goldhagen did that in a very widely read book or widely bought book, which may have been a little bit less widely read, called Hitler's Willing Executioners. And it was Goldhagen's thesis that these were not ordinary men, that Browning had missed the essence of what was happening, that in essence, these were ordinary Germans who had gone from what he called eliminationist antisemitism to exterminationist antisemitism. Eliminationist antisemitism means we want to get rid of the Jews that could mean a number of things. It could mean shipping them off to reservations. It could mean forced, uh, forced deportations. It could mean voluntary departure. We want to get them off German land, off German soil, out of German cultural life. It could mean Madagascar. And according to uh, Professor Conrad Kuit, it could also mean sending the Jews to Australia. And he has an interesting uh, series of documents that he's going to present in London a little bit later on in the year. Extermination, uh, eliminationist antisemitism gradually evolved in Germany to be what he called exterminationist antisemitism. I don't want to easily use such language because extermination is Nazi language. It's what we do to vermin. It's what we do to... Uh, cockroaches, it's what uh, we do to uh, peop- uh, to things that are not human. So I want to call it very simply murder. And essentially what uh, Goldhagen was arguing was that in order to understand this phenomenon, you had to understand that these were not ordinary men. These were men who had been schooled in an anti-Semitic tradition that had now taken root. It had been there for about eight years in power, and they were going along with not only get rid of the Jews but annihilate them, destroy them, murder them, take them off the face of the earth. Where has the debate gone since? The debate has gone since in a very different direction. As you saw here, One of the interesting things is to look about the role of locals and to look about the role of neighbors and also to ask yourself the question which David Marwell so brilliantly asked, which is who brings a young kid in shorts to witness such an event? if you know the work of Father Patrick Dubois. Father Patrick Dubois is a French Roman Catholic priest who has been going to these areas in Eastern Europe interviewing people who are now 85 years old. Remember, this killing was done in 1941 and 42, which is 75 years ago and a person who was 10 years old at that point is now what? 85 years old. Dubois is going there and he's doing a couple of things. Number one, he's interviewing the people who know where the burial site is. He's also doing two very small but very essential things. He's digging up part of the burial site and he's discovering forensic evidence. The first piece of forensic evidence you saw in that brief film, you saw bullets. Remember he made the distinction between the ordinary rifles that ordinary men were carrying from home and what the, the bullets that were used by soldiers he also therefore is saying that when you look at the forensic evidence in those pits, you can discover who did the killing. Was it a local? Was it the SS? Was it the Wehrmacht? Was it the Romanians? One of the incredible things in is to hear the German army complain about the brutality of the Romanians who are killing in such a manner that they're bringing dishonor to the military profession. Killing ordinary human beings, men, women, and children, does not bring dishonor to the military profession. But doing it the way the Romanians were doing it uh, brought a strong sense of dishonor. So we're discovering by the bullets who were the killers. And we're also discovering one other very interesting thing by an interesting artifact. We're discovering two other things by a very interesting artifact that uh, he's finding. He's finding an artifact which each of you have in your pockets. The artifact is an ordinary artifact that you pay no attention to, but it's keys. Now I want you to think of why you have keys in your pocket essentially means essentially when you left home it essentially means that when you left home this morning you fully expect to what return home this evening and you equally fully expect that what your home is going to be safe and secure when you parked your car in what we Americans call a garage what you call a car park When you parked your car, your assumption is that when you leave this meeting, when you leave this lecture, you're gonna go out and find what? Your car present and what what is the safety valve that you have? The key. He's also discovering a third thing, which is he's discovering that there are some skeletons without any bullet marks. And that means that some people were buried alive and I'm not gonna have play the testimony of one that we discovered who was buried alive. And it also means <coughs> that the reports of the local townspeople that the earth continued to move for several days was not a matter of settling in and not a poetic description of the unease, but an actual description of people who were buried alive who might have found pockets of error and tried to get out. So that's Dubois' work. We then look at the work of somebody like Tim Snyder, the Yale historian. And Tim Snyder makes an interesting point that in Latvia, in Estonia, no German killed a Jew. Only the Estonians killed their own. If you go to the minutes, the protocols of the Wannsee Conference, you see Estonia is referred to with pride because Estonia is Judenrein. There are no Jews left in Estonia at that point. Later on, they began importing them because they needed a place to put some Jews, but no Jews <coughs> were in Estonia. And the people who killed the Jews in Estonia were not Germans, but Estonians. In Latvia and Lithuania, the bulk of the killing were done by locals whom Snyder identifies as people who had been victims of double occupation, meaning the Soviet occupation followed by the German occupation, and who showed their utility (coughs) to the Germans by being involved in what he calls double collaboration, meaning they first collaborated with the communists and then to cleanse themselves of that odor, of that stench, they collaborated with the Germans and what the best form of collaboration with the German occupation was participation in the murder of the Jews. Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, And Tim Snyder then shows us one other thing, which is he shows us that um, in in essence, not only Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, but one of the reasons that gassing was introduced into Belarus was because essentially Germans were being asked to kill other Germans, meaning Jews who had been deported to Belarus, and they preferred a method of gassing rather than direct murder bullet by bullet, person by person, et cetera, et cetera. That means that we've moved away dramatically from the debate as to whether it's ordinary men or ordinary Germans. We then look at the work of a historian who deserves a tremendous amount of credit even though the current Polish government is seeking to discredit his work and has made him the equivalent of persona non grata. And that is Jan Gross who wrote a very important book called, he wrote two very important books, Neighbors and Fears, both of whom are immensely easily readable. And what he shows that in the town of Jedwabne, which is a small Polish town, The townsmen used the occasion of the Germans being, the Polish townsmen under occupation, used the occasion of the Jews being in the vicinity to kill their local population with the idea that if they killed their local population, they would be able to inherit the property, to take over the businesses, to enter the homes, to pillage, to ransack, to do, in the words of the biblical experience, to murder and then inherit and take over. So it shows you that, in essence, as you go into detail after detail after detail, you begin to see that the debate of 20 years ago of ordinary men versus ordinary Germans now becomes a much wider debate. Along comes a young scholar who writes uh, a book that um, is gonna be interesting to see the reviews of because he's gonna make everybody unhappy. And sometimes in scholarship, if you make everybody unhappy, you'll either have one of two things. You'll either be attacked by everybody or in essence, people are going to say, since he makes everybody unhappy, he may accidentally make us happy. Uh, and that is that <coughs> the work is by a fellow named Joshua Zimmerman. It's the work on the uh, Polish underground and the Jews. And the reason it's going to make everybody unhappy is because it tells a complicated story where everybody's comfortable with telling a simple story. Poles are happy to tell the story of how the Polish underground cooperated with the Jews, and that's true somewhere and sometime. The Jews are um, happy to blame the Poles for lack of cooperation because the betrayal by, they have limited expectations, almost no expectations from the Nazis, but they had expectations from their neighbors. And since they had a relationship with them, and some of them had gone to school together, some of them had known each other, grown up with each other, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, the betrayal, when it didn't come true, the betrayal is personal and deeply felt. And consequently, the anger is enormous. Uh, and what Zimmerman shows is that it depends where, when and how and what because he shows, for example, that there is a dramatic geographical difference in the degree of cooperation. There's a difference of timing, and the timing is different when you begin to see the final solution in full operation or when it's only evolving. There's a difference of geography, a period of time when the poles are expecting that liberation is going to come from the West. And then when the Poles realized that the first foreign forces to enter Polish land and the Polish state, which between 1919 and 1939 was this grand Polish state, the first group that's going to enter the Polish state is not going to be from the West. It's going to be from the East, namely the Soviet forces. And they are suspicious of the Soviet forces and their relationship with the Jews because of a much earlier experience, which is easily comprehensible from the perspective of Jewish history, but not quite understandable from the Polish perspective of Polish nationalism. Let me explain so you don't think I'm being too convoluted. Um, and let me preface this by saying um, that we're about to discredit the theory that those who don't learn from history are condemned to repeat it. And the proof positive is in what I'm about to say. You know that on September 1st, the Germans invaded Poland from the West. On September 17th, the Soviet Union invaded Poland from the East Poland was divided. That left a difficult choice for Jews living in the territory that was between the Soviet and the, and the German occupation. If you judged from history, for a couple hundred years, safety was found more in moving westward than moving eastward. And during World War I, <laughs> The Germans were a benign occupier and the Russians were a lousy occupier. So if you learned from history, which direction would you move? The basic direction is you would move westward toward German occupation, but then you would have come under the control of Nazi Germany, and chances are at that point, you would have been killed over a period of time. If you went into the Soviet zone of occupation in 1940, you faced a moment of interesting choice. You were given a choice in 1940 of whether to accept or not accept Soviet citizenship. The occupation was interesting because the occupation was difficult for Judaism and difficult for some Jews, namely capitalist merchants and uh, people who had uh, run stores and the like. But the ordinary Jew who was not particularly religious found that all of a sudden there was less anti-Semitism. If you accepted... Soviet citizenship. You stayed put, and I'll tell you what happened in a moment. If you did not accept Soviet citizenship, you were deported towards Siberia and other places in the Far East. Ironically, you faced starvation, malnutrition, disease, hardships, cold, everything except what? No murder and chances are then that if you were young and reasonably able-bodied, you returned alive in 1946. But if you stayed where you were, you were annihilated precisely by these types of mobile killing units and ghettoization in those areas followed these mobile killing units and then you faced a second type of annihilation. So essentially, The Jews who welcomed the Soviet entry were acting with a reasonable sense of what was in their best interest, not necessarily acting under a love of communism, though for some it might have been. But given the alternative of Nazi Germany, the Soviet Union looked quite, um, one would never say terrific, the lesser of two evils but the much lesser of two evils. To the general Polish population, if they wanted to say it, that was betrayal. Because it was betraying Polish nationalism, but Jews were not necessarily part of Polish nationalism because Polish nationalism is, Roman, is linked deeply to Roman Catholicism. So when it looked like the Soviet Union was going to, again, I don't wanna use the word liberate, but come in as the force to defeat Nazi Germany on uh, Polish soil, the Polish underground was fearful of those who would cooperate with the Soviet Union, anti-Semitic enough and experienced enough to believe that they would be Jews, and consequently the Jews got whipsawed again in those circumstances. The largest point that I want to make now is that the research shows that the transformation of what we thought was a reasonably clear debate of 20 some odd years ago where we could identify the killers and everybody else, the research shows something very different. And because it shows something very different, we now have beginnings of re-examination, different types of disputes, and again, you're gonna have lots of regional studies that are gonna shed light on this large question. That doesn't necessarily mean that Browning was wrong in his reading of documentation. It doesn't necessarily even mean that Goldhagen was wrong in his focus on anti-Semitism of the perpetrators when they were German perpetrators, but it means essentially the situation is more complex. Clear? Let's take that as one area. Now I'm gonna do something very briefly, but let me preface it uh, by saying the following. I don't know how Australians are gonna respond to it. I do know how Americans respond to this. Um, I was, telling uh, some people earlier at the museum that there was a brilliant Jewish quipster. A quipster is a person who's able to put in one sentence a precious truth, make you laugh at it. The quipster wrote in the 1960s, his name was Milton Himmelfarb. <laughs> and Milton Himmelfarb wrote two, uh, said two things that became famous throughout the American Jewish community. His first statement was that Jews earn like Episcopalians, they vote like Puerto Ricans. That the American Jewish voting pattern is the only voting pattern that did not migrate from its working class origins, and every election they have told you that the next election the Jews are gonna behave like ordinary affluent Americans, and migrate, and it has yet to happen 75, 80 years later. And it's certainly not gonna happen in this election. (laughs) His second comment is that the easiest way to get booed by a Jewish audience in the United States, and you guys in Australia are just polite. I mean, you see it on the roads, I see it in the way you greet people, so, couldn't happen in, in Australia. Easiest way to get booed in the United States is to tell a Jewish audience that anti-Semitism is less severe a problem than they think it is. And in my field, the easiest way to get booed in Holocaust studies is to tell you that FDR was less bad than you thought he was. Guaranteed that you get booed, guaranteed that people stand up, etc. I wrote a review of this uh, book which whose title tells you a lot. Title was Franklin Delano Roosevelt was the best. I should now duck. He was the best of his generation's leaders in responding to the Holocaust. The best of the US presidents in responding to genocide. And that is not a compliment. and I've insisted that anybody who quotes the title quotes the entire title. Our colleague Richard Breitman and Alan um, Lichman have now examined FDR's record and said the following. They said, before you ask how Roosevelt responded, you can't treat Holocaust history in isolation from American history, and you can't treat Holocaust history in isolation from American politics. And therefore, the flaw up till now has been, they argue, that we didn't see Roosevelt on the terms in which he lived and he governed We saw him on our terms and the way in which we presume he should have worked. So what's the argument? And I'll just give it to you uh, very briefly. The argument was that when Franklin, and and let's remember its implication in a very important way. Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Adolf Hitler came to uh, power at precisely the same time. Hitler on January 30th, Roosevelt on March 4th, 1933. In those days, Americans took office not on January 20th, but on March 4th. After Roosevelt, it was changed because they felt there was too much of a power gap between the November election and the March 4th inauguration, and that you had to speed the process up. In short, when Roosevelt came to power, he and Hitler both, and forgive me for using the two in the same breath, but he and Hitler both, faced a 40% decline in gross national product and a 25% unemployment rate. When Roosevelt came to power in 33, his first, second, third, fourth, and fifth priority was economic. And that is that America was more or less isolationist and even if Roosevelt did not like Hitler and did not like what was happening in Nazi Germany, he was elected to handle an economic crisis of the highest magnitude and his only concern was what? The economic well-being of the United States of America. The theory of, um, of Breitman and Lichtman is essentially that we have to see Not the timing of the Holocaust, but the timing of Roosevelt's political viability to understand what he could and would and would not do. Second example. Roosevelt took, convened the Evian Conference in 1938. The Evian Conference was convened in 1938, but what was Roosevelt's condition in 1938? Roosevelt's condition in 1938 was quite interesting because by then he was no longer or seemingly no longer to face the American electorate again because the custom had been the custom that Roosevelt later defied. The custom had been that the American president only served for two terms. Therefore, he had something very rare which we see now in President Obama he had freedom of action because what? He wasn't gonna face the electorate again. And the second thing is he had brought the country fairly well back to America, to prosperity. And therefore he didn't have to face the problem of if we bring refugees in, they're gonna take American jobs, which had been the deeply inhibiting factor the deeply inhibiting factor throughout the first several years of Roosevelt's term. In fact, 95% of the Americans opposed what happened in November 1938, the Reichspogrom we know as Kristallnacht, but the measure of people who wanted to expand immigration to the United States did not move by more than 2%. So there was no correlation between opposing quotation marks Kristallnacht and wanting to receive immigrants in the United States. And if you see the American discourse today, and we have a, a, an unemployment rate that is 4.9%, and you would think we had an unemployment rate of 40 or 50% at this moment, but I don't want to get political. 38, Roosevelt had freedom of action. Thirty-nine. When he, for example, did not push to receive people here like the English had received people in the United States. I'm in Australia. I have got to remind myself. People in the United States. The way in which, for example, the way for, in which, for example, England had received ten thousand children on Kinder transport. He knew two things that the American people did not know. 1939 was also the year in which the St. Louis was not allowed on the American shores. It had gone to Cuba, it sailed within sight of the shores of Miami, and it was not allowed into the United States. What did he know in 1939 that meant he was going to restrain his exercise of political capital? He knew two things that the American people did not know from him. One is he knew that he was going to run for a third term as president of the United States. And to do that, he needed all the capital in the world. Never been done before, never to be done afterwards, except if we suspend the Constitution and all of that, but at this moment, never to be done again. The second thing he knew was he knew that the United States was gonna enter the war. He understood that war with Germany was inevitable and his major achievement was to position the American industrial complex in such a way that it could prepare for the war and position the American military in such a way that it could prepare for war. And if you want to read one book on the subject, I'm gonna do something a historian seldom does. I'm gonna suggest a work of fiction. The work of fiction is the counter history written by Philip Roth called The Plot Against America. It is one of the most compelling books you will ever read so compelling that about three quarters of the way through the book I turned to the end to make sure that my recollection of history was correct. Meaning he had made it so real that you could imagine Charles Limbaugh being elected president of the United States, Roosevelt retiring American isolationist, and Nazi Germany triumphant without opposition. So the question becomes in 1939 if you're Franklin Delano Roosevelt, are you going to use political, are you going to husband your political capital to run for a third term and to manipulate America into the war? Or are you going to spend it on receiving refugees, on bringing kinder transport in, on handling a symbolic bolt? And I'm not going to make the judgment, but I'm going to say that Breitman and Lickman suggest that you consider, what the issue is. Let's push ahead on one, two final points, 1942. You want to understand 1942 in Jewish history, I want you to understand one sentence. When the Vanzai Conference was held on January 20th, 1942, between 75 and 80% of the Jews who were to be murdered in the Holocaust were still alive. 15, 16 months later, 80% of them were dead. You want to know what 1942 meant? 80% of the Jews were alive in, 19, in January 1942. By March or April 1943, 80% of them were dead. 1943 was the alpha and omega of the catastrophe. What was on Roosevelt's desk in 1942? World War II. What did it look like in terms of America winning World War II immediately after Pearl Harbor? What was the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth priority of the American people and of the President of the United States in 1942? Not winning the war, but surviving another year or two. Couldn't even imagine yet winning the war, your task was to what? Make sure you didn't go down. Did anybody want to at that point say that your major priority should be what's ha- for if they knew, but your major priority should be what was happening to the Jews only, only after the president of the United States dealt with the war. And I can spend an hour, but I'm not going to do you, telling exactly at what point in that process people became aware of what, what they did, how they did, etc. But in 1942, the single biggest priority of the President of the United States was what? Surviving the war. Not yet winning the war, surviving the war. What's the moment that Franklin Delano Roosevelt does take some action on behalf of the Jews? 1944. What? And by the way, we can dispute how significant the action, but what's the difference between 42 and 44? In 1944, it is inevitable that Germany is going to be defeated. The only question is what? When? The other question is who's gonna be where or when it happens, but the only question is when. That's after Stalingrad. It's after the invasion of North Africa. It's in preparation for the D-Day invasion of what, <coughs> what's gonna happen on June 6th, forty-four? And Roosevelt is aware of one more thing that only a very limited number of people are aware of. He's aware of the fact that he's dying. And the question, his personal priority is before he dies and he's running for a fourth term, probably irresponsibly running for a fourth term because his health is deteriorating dramatically and rapidly. He's still, relatively speaking, a young man. He's only in his 60s. But his sense of ego and probably sense of history was that he could achieve things before he died that nobody else could achieve. And what is his energy devoted to? To establishing the world that is going to exist in the aftermath of what? Of the American, the Allied, and the Soviet victory over Nazi Germany. That means that, in essence, he had a little bit of political capital he could expend on Jews, the War Refugee Board, and whatever have you. It also means that when he meets with Jan Karski, the Polish courier, he can say, you tell your people we shall win the war, and then we shall deal with the refugees. And what he's really saying is, in essence, my priority is to win the war, and to establish the war in such a way that we establish what the post-war world is going to be. Seen in that light, and I hate to say anything nice about Roosevelt and you're too polite to boo me, seen in that light, you have to see American policy in a different way. And all I'm suggesting again is that it can be disputed, but it's got to be re-examined and the like. I've gone on, so let me just do one more thing very briefly and let me conclude um, because um, uh, I told um, Avril, a fun story. Uh, Years ago, I came to a synagogue, asked a rabbi, I said, rabbi, how long should I speak? He says, you speak as long as you want. We leave at 12 noon. (laughs) So I want to just say one more thing, which is that the more distant we grow from the Holocaust, the more people have courage to face certain questions that would have been regarded as more problematic to face before. And that is that as we grow at a, at a distance, we're going to find that people are asking different questions. By the way, I'm going to contradict myself in one thing. Um, those of you who are looking for a good thesis four or five years from to now, are going to find something, young students are going to find something absolutely interesting that what's going to be declassified in Israel shortly are the honor trials that were held of the victims judging the victims, which had been sealed for 70 years. And if you have young students who can read Hebrew and want an interesting dissertation This is going to be a fascinating dissertation on the aftermath of the war. Worth learning Hebrew just to read. And it's a judgment, by the way, that we're going to see. I want to touch on on two issues um, very very quickly. Um, One is a book that irritated me because it was so goddamn good. Um, Personal story. I studied with the great American Jewish theologian Abraham Joshua Heschel. Abraham Joshua Heschel, I'm gonna say something, you're gonna look at me like I'm crazy, I am crazy, but this is not evidence of it. Abraham Joshua Heschel never wrote a book. You're gonna argue, wait a minute, I've read books by Heschel, what do you mean he never wrote a book? Abraham Joshua Heschel used to write sentences put them in a file folder and have sentences join other sentences to become paragraphs, and paragraphs join other paragraphs to become chapters, and chapters join other other chapters to become books. So if you really want to read Heschel, read one sentence, and the sentences are gems. Years ago, I was reading a book on the Holocaust, and I started laughing. And I said to myself, I'm not the cruelest son of a bitch in the world, why am I laughing? So I started paying attention I realized that the author himself was funny. And therefore I started paying attention and I started collecting in folders, now on computer, all of the jokes that emerged from the Holocaust, with the idea that humor, is one of the tools of the oppression of the oppressed to deal with their oppression. And I figured that someday I would write a book on Holocaust humor, probably when I was willing to duck because I have an, enough of a public figure that I didn't want people to say, oh Birnbaum wrote a Holocaust joke book. But the important thing was to understand the role of humor within the event as the capacity of people to deal with their own oppression. And we can tell you and, 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 and the like, but um, a woman by the name of Chaya Astrover wrote the damn book. It's called It Kept Us Alive, Humor in the Holocaust. And I read the book with great anger because she wrote the book that I've been gathering for 30 years, <laughs> joke by joke by joke. And what got me angrier about it was she wrote a good book. And she wrote a good book because she understood that she actually wrote four books, um, four books in one She wrote a book, one is a collection of jokes, the other is the way in which humor of the oppressed is used. The third is the way in which in the Holocaust you had people who were deliberately humorous, whether it was people parading as clowns in the Warsaw Ghetto or people who were in comedy clubs. And finally, the way in which people masked their suffering by humor. Let me not go in at length to this, but let me only tell you um, uh, four jokes. Some of you may have heard them before, but uh, let's just do uh, very simply. Four Jews walk into a restaurant in Leipzig. They sit down at a table, Jewish restaurant. After being silent for a few minutes, one Jew becomes articulate, Oi. Another one says, Oi, Ve. No, no. The fourth one jumped his chair and he said in a low but emphatic voice, if you folks don't talk, stop talking about politics, I'm leaving. (laughs) Moshe Greenspan read an advertisement that a certain publishing house needed a proofreader and applied for the job. We don't employ Jews here, said the foreman. However, if you agree to be baptized, I may make an exception in your case. Oh no, replied Greenspan, I could never do that. Then get out, snapped the foreman. As long as I'm alive, I will never employ a Jew in this firm. Greenspan says, I'll wait. (laughs) A Jew alternately laughs and yells in his sleep. His wife wakes him up from a nightmare and he's mad at her. He says... I was dreaming on the wall that said, what happened? She said, Maishala, what happened? I was dreaming on the wall that somebody wrote, beat the Jews down with the shaychet, the ritual slaughter. So what are you happy about? He says, don't you understand? That means the good old days are back again. The poles are running things. (laughs) A child is asked in the Warsaw ghetto, what would you like most of all if you were Hitler's son? He said, I'd like to be orphaned. <laughs> and Moshe and Chaim are being taken out to shot. The executioner asked them, do you have a final wish? Chaim answers, no. Moshe says, I'm not sure I can face the firing squad. Would you please give me a blindfold? Chaim turns to Moshe in stern rebuke and says, what are you causing trouble for? And finally, perceptions, finally, perceptions, again, Moshe and Chaim, one is reading Der Sturmer, the other is reading the Jewish newspaper. Moshe turns to Chaim and says, Chaim, how can you read such garbage? He says, what do you mean? How can you read such garbage? He says, what do you mean I'm reading garbage? I'm reading the Jewish newspaper. He says, yes, but you read your newspaper, and what you're reading is that we're in trouble, that tomorrow's going to be worse than yesterday, and the day after tomorrow, even more catastrophic. Me, I'm reading Der Sturmer. I didn't realize that Roosevelt is Rosenfeld. I didn't realize we control the world. <laughs> and I didn't realize that the entire universe is under our control. Why would you read your newspaper? And again, part of what you see in just this brief thing is how humor can be used. By the way, humor is also, interestingly enough, humor was also used as a code. Guy writes a postcard. Here we eat as joyfully as we do on Yom Kippur, and we sleep sleep in in beautiful Sukkot, and uh, and we dress as if it's Purim. Those of you who are not uh, Jews don't understand that on uh, Yom Kippur, you don't eat. On Sukkot, you live in a hut that is open to the sky. And on Purim, you dress in costumes, which are usually raggedy and the like. So you use that as codes. (coughs) One final example, and then I'll take questions. For an entire two generations, Yad Vashem has honored those who are deemed righteous among the nations of the earth. Now, I'm a good friend of Yad Vashem, and I'm known to irritate them because I'm known to say that I think the title is slightly exaggerated. Scale of 1 to 10, it's exaggerated by 20. But it's slightly exaggerated in the most serious sense of the term. The reason is that the people who rescued generally were not trying to be righteous, they were trying to be decent in a world that lacked all decency. You can call Oscar Schindler many things, you really can't call him righteous. Instead, what you can say of these people is they were rescuers, or you can say that in a world of which lacked humanity, they ascended to the heights because they displayed humanity. The former head of that department, uh, Mordechai Paldiel, who is a tenacious researcher, a tenacious researcher, the former head of that archive has now written a very interesting and, and when I speak at Yad Vashem I say stop making it so lofty because if you make it so lofty kids can't aspire to be that. Aside from kids who go to deeply religious schools, most of us don't aspire to be righteous." Maybe in our good days, we aspire to be decent. Moshe uh, Mordechai Paldiel wrote a very important book about Jews who rescue Jews, which is really about self-help. And consequently gave us a different model of behavior that we can aspire to if we can't rescue the stranger, or we're not responsible, or we can't bring ourselves to rescue the stranger. He gives us all sorts of models about rescue ourselves. A generation ago, you couldn't have written the book. Not because the information was not there, but because it would have seemed absurd and obscene. Now, at a distance from the Holocaust, we can write such a book. Let me conclude with the following sentence. First, tell you an American joke, the, the, um, In American politics, the um, optimist was the woman who put on her shoes after Bill Clinton said in conclusion for the sixth time. Um, In conclusion, one of the things that makes the Holocaust so fascinating a subject of study is because it deals with the most extreme questions of life and death. One of the things that makes it so difficult a study is not only its content, but it's the voluminousness, the unbelievable voluminousness of what is available and information. And it's almost impossible for anyone, even the most most informed of us, to stay current in the field because of what's happening. So over time, you will see that one can use the evergreen, what we understand, what we don't understand, what is disputed, and what must be re-examined. Thank you very much. Let's take questions. And i like uh, to take the questions and answers. And there is a portable microphone. So if if people will use that, please.
3: Thank you very much for a really revelatory uh, lecture. To what extent has there been a study of the role of the Austrians in the Holocaust? And it's my understanding that they had a disproportionate
1: Participation in the prosecution of it, but this is still not really accepted by Austrian governments and population, there and is like Germany. A, there is a peculiar um, disease in Austria that um, was known to older people as the Waldheimer's disease. Waldheimer's disease is a subchapter of Alzheimer's but it only means you do not remember what you did between March 1938 and May 8, 1945. <laughs> Austria became deeply and profoundly comfortable with the myth of the first victim. My friend Stuart Eisenstadt says of Austria, they believe that Hitler was German and Beethoven was Austrian. And part of what we're looking for out of Austria is for a generation of Austrian historians, not us from the outside, but Austrian historians to face the truth of what happened in their country. Now, uh, I had a, a student who visited me here who wants to work on what the third generation of Germans the descendants of the perpetrators are doing about their ancestors. And you have a new spate of books by third generation Germans who are willing to confront what their grandparents did. I appeared on a panel in Mexico with a woman by the name Himmler and appeared on a panel at a university and I thought, oh my God, they're setting me up. I don't really want to appear on a panel with somebody by the name of Himmler. But I said, I'm open. Let me read her book. I read her book. It's an honest indictment of her granduncle, of her grandmother, and of her grandfather. You also have the same thing. There's a wonderful new film about uh, Hans Frank uh, and and the like and, and his assistant. And you have two sons, one of whom celebrates his father and the other and can't believe that his father was a bad guy. And one of whom absolutely despised what his father did. So Austria has not had that cleansing history. There is a little bit of minor hope in the following small instance. There's going to be. You all know that Auschwitz is Auschwitz as a museum is designed around national pavilions. National pavilions is an absolute ludicrous notion, because people were not killed because they were citizens of a state. They were killed because they were uh, 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 the word that we can't say, Jews but there is a new pavilion that's being done in Auschwitz on Austria, which is being done by a very honest and very good woman by Hannah Lessing. And we will see what she says about Austria and how she deals with it and whether she creates the type of revolution that has to happen for Austria Austria to confront who it is. But seriously speaking, Many Austrians suffer from Alzheimer's disease. It's very comfortable to forget certain things. Yes, sir. Yes, One of you can tell us, has there been academic research or an answer to whether the progression, whether it's an organic progression or whether there was a decision to move from anti-Semitism to resettlement to ghettos, and now we kill the Jews? So the Germans kept meticulous records... Was that a decision, or is that something that just seemed to evolve? And if there was a decision, can we point to it? Can we point to some documentation? Well, uh, the answer, first of all, the answer, the answer is yes, 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 and yes. The rest is commentary. But let me explain. There were a series of decisions that evolved. Uh, let's give a, a couple of examples. There's a new book on ghettos by a man by the name of Dan Mechman. And Don Machmann, who seldom writes on general topics but writes on precision and detail, all of a sudden writes a general overview of ghetto and shows that ghetto was a local initiative that gradually became far more than local. It became policy and that there were different instances of ghettoization taking place. We do know, for example, Christopher Browning followed through on the first gassing not the first gassing of the T4 program, but the first gassing with mobile gassing units. And the mobile gassing units, he shows how local mechanics adjusted furniture trucks to be able to kill. He shows, for example, that they essentially jerry-rigged, is that a word in in Australian English? Mm -hmm. They jerry-rigged a furniture truck where they put a hose to the back of the exhaust system. They cut a hole in the floor and they piped the gas in. That developed two problems. It developed a problem that people rushed the rear door and broke the rear door and they put tremendous weight on the rear springs. They then enforced the rear springs Uh, they enforced the rear door and they uh, strengthened the rear springs and gradually you had an order to Renault to be able to build these trucks with better rear springs and better rear doors. They then discovered, for example, that there was a problem with um, sanitation because apparently when people get gassed they may not have control of certain bodily fluids. They therefore cut a hole in the floor for a um, drainage system so they could clean it out. Once they cleaned it out, then they set the orders so that there was a drain in the floor. There are all sorts of localized decisions that then become nationalized and become implemented all the way through. And we also have a debate in the field what is the moment at which the decision was implemented regarding annihilation rather than creating reservations? The NISCO plan, the, uh, uh, the, the Australian plan, the Madagascar plan. I mean, even Eichmann is speaking about Madagascar <coughs> fairly late in, in the process. Now, where did the Israeli prime minister get into trouble? The Israeli Prime Minister uh, earlier uh, this year, or, or it may have been late, late last year, the Israeli Prime Minister said it was only after Hitler met with the mufti that he decided on gassing. And every historian who knew that laughed at him. This is the son of historians who should have known better. Known better. Why did we laugh at him? Because uh, th- they met in late November '41. In October 41, the order was given to create the Belzec death camp, was given to Globotnik. It was already underway, and by October 1941, they no longer allowed emigration from Germany. Jews could leave Germany prior to that, and the subject of a meeting between Heydrich and Himmler included annihilation which they may, I I don't remember the German word at this moment, they may have spoken it as as extermination. So we know that at what point a quasi-decision was implemented that could not have been implemented without it being approved by the highest office and only Holocaust deniers would believe that Hitler was not involved in that. We don't have the signed decision as we do in the T4 program. The mobile killing units could not have killed without a decision being made, and that also was used in certain areas and then became globalized. So what I've always um, said in in my work, or not always, but almost uh, last 20 some odd years, is that the notion of following orders is a mistake. You have to look at where these people innovated and what level they innovated at, and sometimes the innovation occurred not at this level, not even at that level. It occurred when you give a mechanic a problem to solve, and he doesn't ask himself the question, what am I solving? You go to a mechanic, and you've all been to mechanics who know how to figure, and I'm not accusing any of your mechanics, God forbid, of killing, who who know how to solve a problem, who figure it out, and who jerry-rig something up, and they make it work. We used to have repairmen like that before we started throwing things out. But that's the level upon which it goes. Other questions?
4: Hello. Um, Yeah. I was interested in your comments about Roosevelt. I think in Australia, we don't necessarily have the same views. And my late husband, who was a to transport child, went from Germany to England in 1939, and then, I believe, in 1940, he went to America. He didn't ever have a negative view of Roosevelt. And he he lived under him, became an American citizen under him. However, um, I have read many criticisms, and I'm very much a war historian, I'm really interested in military history. I met many criticisms that said, oh, they could have bombed the railway lines and so on. And what I understand of the accuracy of bombing at that time and the distances <coughs> involved, uh, they could not really have done the bombing at times that so people wanted that. I'm very interested in the work of Ruf Lichtenstein, who's the editor of the Hamadiyash, She's done a lot of um, Holocaust history and she's commented on some of these things, especially um, this one you just talked about recently about Jews rescuing Jews, and would you have some more comments?
1: Well, um, I spoke at the um, at the uh, Australian um, uh, Jewish Museum, at the Sydney Jewish Museum, I spoke about the issue of bombing. Uh, I've written a book on that, um, and to give you a short answer, um, is a little bit difficult, but let me try in the following way on one leg. Um, the reason people are interested in the question of bombing is because it seems like a cheap solution to the whole problem. Bombing, you know, does not put soldiers at risk. Bombing looks like it's instantaneous. Bombing could only have occurred, begin. the American government had a policy that is not to, that you would have difficulty confronting. The policy was that during the war that we did not send people out on suicide missions. That does not mean we sent them on missions we expected them to return from, but they had to at least have a theoretical chance of returning. That meant that you could have only bombed Auschwitz once we secured bases, once the Americans secured or the Allies secured bases in southern Italy which were 500, uh, I told you I wrote a book, so I'm giving you precision on this, 528 nautical miles from Auschwitz. 1,056 round trip, you would have had to come out heavy, go back light. Could only be done in the day, could only be done in good weather without certain types of headwinds. We did not know how to do mid-air refueling at that point. So that means that by the time they were bombing Auschwitz, by the time it was capable of bombing Auschwitz, about 90% of the Jews were already dead, murdered, but that doesn't let us off the hook because, remember, between the 15th of May and the 8th of July, 1944, 437,402 Jews were transported, on 147 trains primarily to, uh, from Hungary to Auschwitz, which meant that if you destroyed <coughs> the bridges, if you destroyed the bridges, you might have hampered the process. The leading document on this is a document written by John J. McLoy, and I'm gonna quote it for you, uh, about 80% of it in the following way. Such an action would require the diversion of considerable air support now engaged in decisive operations elsewhere and would be of such dubious efficacy that it would not warrant the use of such resources. There is considerable opinion to the effect that such an action, even if practicable, might provoke a more vindictive response on the part of the Germans. Now, you are 100% correct by laughing. Because what are you saying when you read that? You're saying, next time Hitler would say he reached his verdict, next time no more nice guy. I'm going to let the gloves off. And you can't imagine what's worse than Auschwitz. Now, what does that tell us? It tells us in one sense that McLoy did not have a clear, or whoever wrote the letter for McLoy, did not have a clear idea of what Auschwitz was really about. Now, ordinarily, people would say that the reason they didn't have a clear idea was anti-Semitism. But I complicate the matter by telling you that there was a decision in Palestine, I'm not being political, I'm being historical, meaning in pre-state Israel, there was a decision taken by Ben-Gurion and his cabinet on June 11th, 1944, which said the following, we don't know enough about the situation on the ground in um, Poland to request that Auschwitz be bombed. Let's assume for a moment that Ben-Gurion was not an anti-Semite. No, some Likudniks might not agree with that. But let's assume for a moment that Ben-Gurion was not an anti-Semite. The most we can say then is that a non-anti-Semite and his cabinet of the Jewish Agency could believe as late as June 11th, 1944 that Auschwitz not be bombed. By the way, that changed on July um, 7th, 1944, but I'm not gonna go into that. The last point I wanna make is a military historical point. There's a word in military history called tasking, T-A-S-K-I-N-G. If they had tasked Auschwitz to be bombed, Every piece of information that American allied and American intelligence services had would have arrived at one desk and we might have had a clear idea of what Auschwitz was about. But there had been a decision early in the war that we were going to go after synthetic rubber and synthetic gas and consequently we were going to target that. That's why we bombed Buna Marwitz several times, but not Auschwitz. Interestingly enough, one of the bombers was George McGovern, who later ran for President of the United States. And he said, and I interviewed him, he said, look, I had people like Cohn and Goldberg. If they had known, once we took off, nobody was gonna tell us where to drop our bombs. We could drop them, we could drop them anywhere because Nobody knew, there was no, it's not like today, you see it on radar and all of that stuff, no precision bombing. He said, I guarantee you, if they knew, and he said, in all the modesty, if I knew, we would have dropped some more bombs, who gives a damn? We would have been lighter earlier, five kilometers earlier. By the way, just one side note, you want to know how small a world it is. You all know those famous aerial photographs of Auschwitz. The man who developed that could have been the single most important man in the history of the world. Why the man who developed that uh, was a man by the name of Dino Brugioni. Dino Brugioni was the leading CIA aerial photograph intelligence officer and he is the man who brought us the Cuban Missile Crisis because he understood what was in the silos. And if we had gone to, the students will not know it, but if we had gone to nuclear war and the war had ended, it all would have been on the words of Dino Brugioni. That's how good he was. And interestingly enough, for American experience, he met privately with John F. Kennedy with no aides in the room, because Kennedy wanted to know directly from him what he saw. And that tells you that if you take intelligence information seriously, and the stakes are enormously high, you had goddamn well, better what? Better check it out. But Brugioni developed this, he developed it in 77 technology, it could not have been seen in 44. I do the following and we're gonna wrap up, let's take all the questions and one answer. In other words, anybody who has a question, let's hear all the questions and you get one answer. Yes sir.
2: Um, I just wanted to say it was a fantastic talk and I enjoyed the fact that you use a lot of archaeology in historical context, which is not often the case by a lot of um, historic academics. Um, my question is, when I was at June, you know, I was lucky enough to hear a Holocaust survivor. One of the things that really startled me, and I actually asked the question of him at the time, was the fact that their anger was towards fellow inmates that were stealing bread and, and butter and jam that were in the in the actual places he was at. And I think a lot of times we don't actually hear about those stories, about the simple acts that... And he was still angry probably 60 years later when you, when you actually question on those issues. Has there been a lot of um, research done on some of those simple questions about the anger that they had in fellow um, prisoners and whether it's, you know, because those sort of aspects are quite interesting in the, in the environment that they're in, that they're actually um, at some stages feeling quite angry or at simple aspects that you, you wouldn't expect.
1: Any other questions? If not, I'll answer that.
2: I'll, I'll just, a very brief one. Yeah. Uh, just briefly, in terms of uh, the, because uh, it's the, uh, talking about dispute re-examined, the context of the Jewish Holocaust within the other holocausts of the 20th century and even within the Second World War, obviously the number of Russian people who've died, which is 20 million plus. Just wondering what the current thinking is in actually in terms of um, contextualizing it in the context of other holocausts and even within the the Jewish Holocaust, the gypsies and the, and the, the, the homosexuals, et cetera, et cetera, disabled people. <coughs>
1: um, let me answer your question by saying I'm sorry you asked it this late. I will answer it personally. I am uh, the editor of a book called The Mosaic of Victims, which deals on non-Jews who were victimized um, by the Nazis I also have been working on how you link and discuss the Holocaust in relationship to other genocides, but I don't think that I could give a short enough answer to be able to give you an answer that is uh, accurate uh, and authoritative uh, without um, exceeding my welcome for the audience. That's That's not to duck your question. It's to say you've asked an essential question. I spoke on that with the Jewish Museum today, and it's important. There, as to your question, um, look, people who feel betrayed, and feel betrayed where it was a matter of life and death, and feel their own impotence to be able to counter the betrayal, it continues to sting and sting and sting and sting and sting. Um, If you look at the literature, for example, you notice something very interesting. You notice that survivors speak with much greater anger at the Poles than they do at the Germans. No reason. The Poles are right when they say it is a Nazi death camp in German-occupied Poland. Not a Polish death camp. Why do they feel angry at the Poles? Because they have expectations from the Poles. The guy used to be my friend, used to be my neighbor. When I, uh, we did some film work on how people experience discrimination. Kids and most of the survivors now whom we have were kids then. Kids describe uh, an example. I was in the schoolyard and I was beaten up. I went to my teacher and my teacher responded by doing the following. Now, and the guy's in tears again. Why is he in tears? Because in a schoolyard, if we are being beaten up, where is safety? Safety is with the teacher. Right, safety is with the teacher. The idea that a teacher would turn around and not look, and, and, and he, he stands up on camera, and he goes like this. And when he turns around again, he's in tears because he's reliving the experience. Believe me, his rage at that moment, at that teacher is an enduring rage and he will clearly take it to the grave. Why? Because it's betrayal and betrayal stings. Thank you very much ladies and gentlemen.